0: How many here could use a rest? A rest. Not looking for a, yeah, get a few hands. Wasn't really looking for a show of hands there, but I did get quite a showing. Maybe you need a nap. Or how about a really good sleep? I don't know if there's anything, any, really anything like the rest After a really good, hard day's work, or perhaps a week of work. Now, as you know, I'm a pastor, but I also sell mattresses. So one way or the other, I'm trying to bring people to a good rest. Amen? Amen? One way or the other, I want to help you find rest. And go ahead and throw that picture up there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So I'm one way or the other. I'm trying to help you out. A good night's sleep is something that is pivotal for the body, the mind, and the soul all functioning at its peak performance. According to research on sleep and rest, an adult needs anywhere from seven to nine hours of sleep. People may not know or recognize it, but when deprived of sufficient sleep, you begin to operate at a less than optimal performance. Why? When you're awake, a chemical called adenosine builds up in your blood, and when you sleep, your body breaks it down. When you skimp on sleep, and the adenosine builds up in your bloodstream, making you more and more desperate to not off, to take a snooze. It affects things like sharpness, reaction time, and you're overall slower than when at optimal rest. You're operating in what is called, and I learned a new term this week sleep debt. Sleep debt. Did you know of such a thing called sleep debt? Yes, some of you are amening or whatever. Just like a credit card debt or a mortgage debt, sleep debt eventually has to be repaid. And the more you add to it, the bigger your balance. There's really something to God's design for the body and the mind where an optimal amount of sleep is required and needed. Also, I think you can add to that that there's something to God's plan of the week, how he laid out the week of six days and a rest, six days and a rest. And there's people that have put in a lot of research in this particular area. And much of the research that has been done in this area concerning rest and considering, concerning the work week have come to agree with this concept of six days and a rest. I found a very successful guy who's a business guy. He had a business that was actually international, so he dealt with international business clients, and you know, you're dealing with people all all across the earth, so across you know the different time zones and things, and. This guy actually tried to come up with a whole new schedule for himself. He came up with what he called a seven-day work week. A seven-day work week, yeah. He hypothesized that he would be more efficient, less distracted, and rested because he had planned in longer break times into his seven-day work week. After trying it for a while, he gave up on it. Some of the reasons were practical reasons like other people were off while he was trying to work, and that didn't kind of work, and that was a distraction. One of the reasons jumped up at me. He said, I burned out, even with a lot of breaks. I wanted every day to be exactly the same, so I worked each day and rested each day. I went to the gym every day. I adjusted my workout so this would be sustainable. I found that even with a gym routine of just a few exercises in different muscle groups, I felt I couldn't get adequate overall renewal just in a single day period. I worked out for 15 days straight and in the end strained a muscle and had to take almost a week off. Similarly, I found it interesting to observe how my passion towards the work I was doing adjusted. To begin with, I was excited during the first week and even at the weekend, I enjoyed working. The hardest aspect I found was to stop myself working so much during the week that I could be fully rested and keep working at the weekend. Overall, I feel like the seven-day work week failed because of a lack of an extended period of renewal. this This is a guy that just did his own experiment. There seems to be really something to this concept that God laid out Here in Genesis, this foundation of the week of six days working and a rest, a day of rest. And people will discover it one way or the other, whether they do their own experiment, whether they try to burn themselves out in whatever way that they discover to do that. But they will discover, sooner or later, you will discover that God has, there's something to God's design. I mean, he's an awesome designer. Can we agree on that? Amen? God created the calendar based on a heptatic structure. You say, a heptatic structure, what's that? Heptatic is just a fancy word for seven. It's a a structure of seven. And it's just built and permeates through everything that God has done. This structure of seven. God's plan is set up on sevens, a seven-day week a week of years, which is seven years. So you'd have a week of years called uh, a week, and they'd call that a seven. And then there is even a prophecy in Daniel that is referred to as the 70 sevens, and that is 70 of these seven-year weeks, totaling 490 years. And so this prophecy that dealt with the God's work with the people of Israel would be for this seventy sevens period or 490 years. Even when Jesus was asked about forgiving your neighbor, his answer was tied to sevens. You know, the, the disciples asked, well, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? One of them threw out a number thinking, well, certainly this will do it, right? Seven times, Lord, seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70 times 7, right? Which I'm still looking for. I think there's something to the work of God's plan with Israel and this whole idea of the forgiveness and the whole plan. I'm still kind of researching that. In my own little wheel spinning, okay? But anyway, 70 times 7 is if to say, keep forgiving and it will be a perfect amount of forgiveness. Amen? <laughs> Just keep on forgiving your neighbor and it's going to be a perfect amount Of forgiveness. So God laid a foundation for rest even into the very fabric of creation. Tonight we're going to look at day seven, day seven of creation and the foundation of rest. So let's read from Genesis chapter two, and this is it. God rests. Let's pick it up. Verse one of chapter two of Genesis. It says this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so we see here a principle. We see here that God rested on the seventh day and he modeled rest. We have here the seventh day. It says on the seventh day he rested from his work of creation. The text here says that the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. We're complete. We're done. He got to the end of it. It was very good on the sixth day and he was totally done. He was complete. It was finished. It was perfection. It was right. It was very good. He was totally done. He finished the work. And then on the seventh day, on the seventh day, it tells us that he rested. He rested on the seventh day. Now this word for seventh day really is a word that you're familiar with. It's It's the word in Hebrew, Shabbat, is how we would pronounce it in kind of an English transliteration of the Hebrew. But it's really Shabbat. And it's, uh, in fact, some uh, languages actually have uh, uh, the the word for Saturday actually is from uh, this word. I I believe so. uh, Saturday in Spanish is? Sabado. Okay, so there it is. It's the seventh day, and it's Saturday, and it's the Shabbat, okay? So this is the idea, and in it, God put this principle that that he rested on the seventh day because he had finished all the work. He finished the work in six days, and it is declared finished on the seventh, finished on the seventh. And that is why seven becomes the number of completion, It becomes the number of completion because God worked for six days and on the seventh day, everything was finished. And here we have it in Genesis chapter two and the writer of Genesis is telling that he finished everything in the heavens and the earth and all the host of them and it was totally finished. It was finished. Look at that verse one. They were finished, finished. And so seven becomes the number of completion. It becomes the number of perfection. Shabbat, Shabbat, what does it mean? It means to it means to cease it means to desist, it means to rest, to cease, desist, to rest from labor to cause to cease to put an end to and so really, what is being seen here is that God worked, and we've been going through Genesis 1, and every day there was things that he was doing on every single day. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, 5, and 6. And he completed the work, and he gets to 7. He gets to the seventh day, and what happens is, is he ceases. He ceases to do that work of creation. Why? Because it's complete, and it's perfect. So he ceases, he ceases and desists, amen, from the labor that he had been doing all week long. It's not not to be seen in any way that this is the response to being exhausted from labor, but rather it is a state of having completed the work. Let me say that again. It's not to be seen in any way that this is the response to being exhausted from labor, but rather, it's the state of having completed the work, of having finished the work. In the principle of Shabbat, God actually models for humanity a principle of productivity. God models for us in the Shabbat, in the seventh day, in the rest, a principle for every single one of us of productivity so that we can be pro- productive in our lives and we move along this pace of productivity and we get to a place of completion. We get to a place of, of, of where things get done, where things get accomplished, and we can rest from that accomplishment and that finishing of the task. Amen? Amen. Because the rest is ceasing from the labor of a finished work. Now let me pry a little bit here tonight. Is your work finished? Is your work finished? How productive are you? In your life, I think tonight you're actually going to learn some things. We're going to learn some things that are going to actually help us in three areas. We're going to be more productive. We're going to finish more work. And we're going to actually have greater rest. Amen. Amen. Because this is what God is establishing in this day, the seventh day. One of the things that Israel had in the week. You look at this week of creation. It becomes the model week throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? Seven days. And this becomes the model week. And and every seventh day, every six days, then you had another Shabbat. You had another rest, you had another day. And one of the things that Israel had before you got to the Shabbat, there was another day, Friday. It was called the day of preparation. The day of preparation. Now, the question is, preparation for what? What were you preparing for on Friday because Shabbat was coming on Saturday? You were preparing for Shabbat. That's what it was for. The preparation day was to, so that you would be prepared for Shabbat. It, it's instilling in us this, 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 this kind of, I don't know, this DNA, if you will, of productivity. Because, because you had to be really kind of focused on this day of preparation because you had to get all your ducks in a row on preparation day. There couldn't be any ducks just dangling out there. Let me put it more in, in the actual way that they were thinking. In the agrarian culture and, and this cu- culture where they had livestock, they had to work hard on Friday to make sure everything was finished, everything all the, the hatch was battened down, all the sheep were put in the pen, and the door was locked. So the day of preparation, you want to talk a day of of preparation, a day of productivity, a day of getting things done, a day of moving and shaking, a day of, wow, this is, woo, look at all that God did on, on Friday. He made animals and all kinds of stuff and man and women and female and two genders and the whole thing that we learned about last week. And wow, he did a lot on Friday. And, and there's the day of preparation where, the, man, as the week goes on, there's, a, there's this kind of thing towards productivity. Amen? So what you had to do was you had to have a day of preparation. You had to get some things accomplished. You had to finish some things. And you had to put everything up. Wow, think about that. Now, many people don't get a lot done. Now, I'm not looking at any of those people here, okay? But there's a lot of people that, you know, they go to places, they go to conferences to learn how to be more productive. They go to listen to, like, gurus and things and whatever to learn principles of how to be more productive in their life, okay? and they don't get a lot done because they aren't working from a place of getting things done. So there's no act of finishing. There's no day of preparation, so there's no act of finishing and then there's no ceasing from the work and enjoying the rest from the ceasing of the work. Now David Allen, I don't know if you know the name, he's he is actually one of these business kind of gurus. And I actually have re- read his book It's actually called Getting Things Done. Amen? This is the name of the book. And one of the principles that David Allen advocates that propels you towards productivity is this. And I'll have it up on the screen. He says this, end each day with a clean desk. End each day with a clean desk. And you say, well, what does this teach you? What does this do? I mean, I, mean, I, I yeah, you could clean your desk and throw everything up in, into a drawer and whatever. And what, no, no, no. What, what this does is it, propel, it, it, it propels you towards finishing. It propels you towards productivity in your day. If you end the day with a clean desk, you'll be starting the next day with a clean desk. And your productivity is increased because you are working towards completion and towards finishing and not, not doing What you need to be doing. And so you're working towards the end of the day where you're going to have a clean desk. And at the end of the week, you've had all these clean desks. And boom, 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 boom. And you've accomplished quite a bit. And it's incredible. And now you're ready to cease from the labor. And enjoy the rest. Amen. Anybody know the name Zig Ziglar? Zig Ziglar, yeah. Zig Ziglar, Christian man. He was a sales and motivation pro in a class of his own. He proposed a thought experiment. Zig said this. Suppose I told you that I was going to take anyone here on a luxury Mediterranean cruise. Now the ship is leaving Tuesday morning. At 7 a.m. That's when the ship is leaving. Now, I'm going to pay the way. I'm going to pay your fare. It's going to be a glorious trip. I mean, you haven't seen food like this. We're going to hit all the sites, you know, the south of France and Italy and Greece and Turkey and Cyprus. And, you know, this is going to be a glorious cruise. But it's leaving on Tuesday at 7 a.m. Now, how many of you could go? How many of you could say, "Yeah, I'll have everything. All I'll have all the stuff. I'll have ev- all the, the everything. You know, all the, the sheep in the pen. I'll have the, the, the you know the, all the hatches battened down. We'll get it all ready. We'll be able to go on the cruise on Tuesday." What this means is that if you're going to go and take advantage of the free trip, you've got to get a lot accomplished by Monday night. You've got to get things done, clean the desk, clean the workstation, clean out all the sheep and get them all into the pen so that Monday night you close the thing up and say, okay, now I'm ready to go on the cruise. Why? Because things are done, things are accomplished. Now I'm ready to cease and Zig pointed this out to his hearers. He said, now the most successful people in life I have found to be the people who treat like every day of the work week, tomorrow I'm going on the cruise. Tomorrow I'm going on the cruise. So if you're going on the cruise always tomorrow, what does that mean for your today? And see, what God did in the week of creation he had that same principle. You look at what he did, he worked and worked and worked. He had that clean desk, because he had that clean desk of saying, "And I looked and saw and everything was good." Day one, day two, I da, 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 and everything was good. Day two. And he got all the way through day six, and it was very good, and it was done and accomplished. And he battened up the hatches and went into day seven. It was complete, it was perfect. And now it's a cease, a ceasing from the work. From a standpoint of accomplishment, of finishing the work, not just of being exhausted. And this is what Zig was trying to get across as well. So before any Sabbath day, this is the day of preparation, and you're getting it done. You're getting it accomplished because tomorrow is the Sabbath. It's a rest. Now, now listen to this. Of all we've said so far, next one. God's rest is a rest in accomplishment, not from exhaustion. God's rest is a rest from accomplishment, not from exhaustion. And this is a fundamental difference that we need to see, and this is what God modeled for us. So you had the weekly Sabbath. You had the weekly Sabbath in Israel, right? I mean, you know, we have this saying. You know, there's people, people want to get, you know, they want to be pastors and stuff, and they want to preach every week and everything, right? They want to, you know, I want to preach, and I want to preach every week. Okay, yeah, guess what? The weekends come around real regular. <laughs> there's this regularity to... The weekend and it comes, and you cannot stop it. It's like a freight train, it's headed forward, and uh, you got to be ready. Amen? So, not only did you have the Sabbath once a week, but you also had the Sabbath of the feast days. So, if you look at Leviticus and you look at all the feasts that God gave to Israel, not only was the once a week Sabbath, but every one of the feast days was also a Sabbath. So if you counted up all the Sabbath days, all the weeks of feasts, you know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, of Passover, uh, you know, Pentecost, uh, Atonement, and Tabernacles, I mean, you count them all up. I mean, there's a lot of days plus the weekly one. So there's a lot of Sabbaths. There's a lot of Sabbaths. There's a lot of, you know, ceasing from work, a lot of ceasing from, you know, ceasing and desisting from the accomplished work, right? Why do you think there's such a work ethic, ingenuity, and productivity of the Jewish people? Can you say that, Charles? Yes. Look at the Jewish people historically. There was a level of ingenuity and productivity and accomplishing things and doing things in this world. Building things and establishing things. You can pretty much go into any area in the country... And go down to the richest areas, and pretty much it'll be a Jewish area. Why? Just because God loves them, loves the people, you know. (laughs) Yes, he does love all people. He loves you. He loves you. But there's a a principle at work. That if there's all kinds of stuff, and I think, now some some of the Jews aren't practicing Jews. They're not practicing all these Sabbaths. But I think there's this work ethic and ingenuity that came and stemmed from all this that is just literally ingrained into the culture, into the people. I, I, I truly believe it. You can disagree with me or whatever. We can have a talk after the service. We'll have some coffee. And you'll say, no, Pastor Charles, I don't agree with that and whatever. Why did you say that? <laughs> I, I, I think what I'm saying, I'm on, I'm on some pretty good ground here. And I think we can learn something from this principle of Sabbath in this. The principle, this principle has been ingrained in their people for thousands of years, for thousands of years. Wow. So much so that when you go over to Israel now, you go to Israel, I remember a couple days that I spent in Jerusalem. You walk into the hotel. We were there on Sabbath. I was in Jerusalem on the Shabbat. In the hotel, they have what's called a Shabbat elevator. It has no buttons. Because you go in there because you can't operate machinery because that's technically work. And so there's one elevator that goes to all the even floors, and the other elevator goes to all the odd floors. And so if you're on floor 10, you go into the even elevator, and you hit 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and then here we go. Shabbat. Because you're not operating a machinery technically you're you're literally igniting a fire electrically so this you have to think through like what the way that they think about it okay it's very interesting so this principle of the sabbath of ceasing to work now some of you are already now wait a second we're new testament believers we're christians we don't have you know we don't do all this in day of preparation and all this i'm getting to the new testament okay we're laying a foundation here amen When you go into the New Testament, what does the New Testament have to to say about the Shabbat, about the rest? The writer of Hebrews, when you get into the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about a rest, a Sabbath, a ceasing from work. A Sabbath, he says it's a rest that remains. A Sabbath that remains. In other words... It's still available for people to enter into it. You see, the Sabbath was something that, that, that people, that, that God designed us to enter into his Sabbath. When you look at it from a standpoint of the week of creation, man was created on day six, kind of in the afternoon, if you kind of do the 24-hour day thing, okay? So even if you look at it from that standpoint, man's first full day was the the Shabbat. Okay, so literally we entered into the perfection and the finished work of God's creation, we entered into his rest. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is there's still a rest that remains. There's still a Shabbat that remains that people can enter into. In chapter 4 of Hebrews... The writer talks about a couple of things. He talks about the children of Israel. Now, a type of the rest, I'm going to use the word typology here, a type. A type and an anti-type. There's the rest of God, and then there's a picture of something that is the antitype. The antitype of God's rest was him providing the promised land for his people, right? The land of Canaan was the land that God said to Abraham, I'm giving this land to you and your seed. Forever, never, never, you're going to possess this land. And so bringing the people out of Egypt... And bringing them up to the very precipice, the the very doorstep to enter into the land. He wanted them to enter into his rest that he had prepared for them. It was the land flowing with milk and honey. They were going to be taken care of. They were going to live in homes that they didn't build. They were going to feed from, from vines and things that they did not plant. They were going to enter into the absolute rest and provision of God. And what happened when Moses took the people that had just walked out of Egypt with the plunder of Egypt. They had just walked through the Red Sea. They walked right up to the doorstep of the land, of the promised land at uh, uh, Beersheba, I believe. Correct me where I'm wrong here. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm trying to track here. All right. Uh, Numbers chapter uh, 13. All right. Don't go there. But just, you know, you can write that down. (coughs) You know, that's when Moses sent the 12 spies in, right? What happened? We all know the story. They didn't. They came back. They had 10 bad reports and two good reports. You had Joshua and Caleb. And that's why you're here tonight. Joshua and Caleb. That's why you're here, Angela. Joshua and Caleb had a good report, and the other 10 guys didn't have a good report. And the people listened to the bad report of the ten spies. And their countenance was brought down. And their faith failed them. Their belief that God was giving them the land failed them. And what happened? We know the story. They didn't go into the land. They didn't possess what God had given them. And they didn't enter into the rest that God wanted to give them. In fact, God said, you will not enter. If you go back and look at that text after they had just rebelled and didn't listen and didn't obey, they said, oh, Moses delivered the verdict from God. You're not going to enter. Okay? And that's not how God said it. He said it with a smile. You are not going to enter the promised land. You did not believe that I was giving you the land. They said, oh, no, 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 we'll go. We'll go now. It was like a typical kid, right? Typical kid, you know, no, oh, the punishment's going to come. Oh, no, we'll go now. We'll go now, God, no. You shall not enter. You're not going to enter. In fact, he does get pretty graphic. He says, "You, you will, your carcass you will you fall over and die. Your carcass will fall over in the desert. It was their kids. It was their children. It was that second generation that went on into the land and possessed the land. And, of course, they had to go across the river, set their feet in the river, and walk over and put their feet down on that land and possess that land that God gave them. Now, you fast forward to the Psalms, and now the writer of Psalms is saying that there's still a rest that's available. Now, wait a second. They already came into the land. You're telling me that there's still a rest available? The the psalmist prophetically, and the writer of Hebrews, this is the argument that he's making in Hebrews 4, that there's still this rest that's available to the person. And the writer of Psalms is saying, yes, there's still a rest They didn't enter in. The second generation did enter in. But now we're several hundred years later, and there's still a rest. Mm -hmm. Prophetically speaking about a rest that is still available, that still remains, that every single person that will believe upon Christ, that will believe upon God, can enter into. Can enter into the rest. Hebrews 4, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest... Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. They did not enter the rest of the Lord. But yet there's still a rest that remains. Entering the rest of the Lord is entering into and enjoying the finished work of God. So God finished his work, but through unbelief, people did not enter into God's rest. This is what prevents People from entering into the rest of the Lord. Unbelief. Not believing God. Not believing Christ. Not believing that he's offering them a true rest. And literally the answer to their very lives. So, the writer of Hebrews says emphatically that there remains a promise of rest. Well, that begs kind of another question, doesn't it? What is it? What is this rest? It's the rest of the finished work of Jesus Christ. From the psalmist looking forward and us looking backward to it, looking back to the finished work of the cross, Jesus, the Messiah, came into the world to do a work of redemption. He came with the work to do. He did work. He came to work. He put on his tool belt. He, he was like Chip Gaines. You know, he, he looked better in a tool belt than he did with anything else. Because he came to work. He came to do a work of redemption. And he did, and he, and he did this whole thing. I mean, he, he worked as a carpenter with his dad. Then he entered his ministry at 30. He had the disciples. He taught them. And then... He told them, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to pick it back up again. And from the cross, when this was all at the culmination of being accomplished, we have the record of it in John chapter 19, verse 30. I'll have it on the screen for you. In the ESV, it says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's accomplished. I think now that we've read from Genesis chapter 2 tonight, I think you can just allow some of those bells to be ringing right now in your brains. Because we just read about how God finished the work of creation. He, he worked on the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them. And it was... Finished, and now Jesus the Son had come into the world to do a perfect work. And as he hung on the cross and about to give up his spirit, he said, It is finished. In this statement, Jesus finished the work of redemption, he completed it. Wow. He completed your salvation. He completed every single thing that needed to be done. He did all of the work. He said from the cross, it is finished. It is accomplished. I actually like in the Passion how they did the subtitles and said it is accomplished because I think that really conveys the sense of what Jesus is saying. It is accomplished. It didn't just kind of peter out and come to an end. No, I, I accomplished this. I accomplished this. I finished the work. Amen? And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in the first chapter of Hebrews. And this is actually a verse that we read last week in our discussion on the image of God. Go to that one, Christian. Hebrews 1, verse 3. It says this, speaking of Jesus, Who being the the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Remember that? The character of His person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what is the, what is the, uh, the writer here? And who was it? We don't know. Some say Paul. I think it was Paul. I don't know. But we'll know someday, right? But it, whoever it was, he's telling us what Jesus accomplished. That he came as the express image Of the Godhead, he came as the express image, the perfect imager of the Godhead. And he came to this world, and he laid his life down, and he did the work. He purged our sins. And after he accomplished that, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, now how much time do we have left? We're going to get to preaching here. So picture this. Picture this with me. Jesus came to earth to do a work, a work of redemption. And when he completed it, when it was finished, when he got to that point where it was fully done, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The seeding of Jesus here should be seen to be parallel to God's resting from his finished work of creation in our text in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 2, God rests from the finished work of creation. In Hebrews 1, Christ rests from the finished work of redemption. Amen? Amen. Now another interesting thought. Another interesting thing to consider with all this, is the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, which pictures, it pictures two things. It pictures, it's a, it's a copy of heaven, and it's a perfect copy. It's a, it speaks to us of Christ. It speaks to us of who he is, what his character, it, character is, and what his work is. When you look at the tabernacle, okay? Okay. Now, the writer of Hebrews, if you read the book of Hebrews, I'll give you a quick summary of the book of Hebrews here in like fifteen seconds. The writer of Hebrews' main argument is that he contrasts the Levitical priest, the, Le- the Levitical priesthood, and their work with the work of our high priest Jesus Christ. So he compares and contrasts the work of the Levitical priesthood to the work of our high priest, the work of Christ. Now, when you look at the construction of the tabernacle, this is the place where the the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, was instructed to do their work. And it was work. I mean, go read Leviticus and see, like, you know, it was work. In fact, it was such strenuous work that you couldn't have a scoliosis. Remember, we talked about this. You couldn't have an irritable skin, and you couldn't have a curved back. You couldn't have a scoliosis. They actually inspected each man to make sure that he was capable of doing the work because it was a lot of work doing all this, getting the animals, tying them down on the horns of 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 the altar and all of it. Okay? When you look at the work of the Levitical priesthood, And the construction of the tabernacle. There's all these workstations. But there's no place for the Levitical priest to sit down. When they're all done. The Levitical priest would come in through the courtyard. They'd come in through the courtyard. The first thing they'd hit was the brazen altar. They'd take an animal, they'd tie it down to the horns on that altar, and that's where the, the sacrifice was made. Now that they were drenched in blood and guts and whatever else, they'd proceed to the brazen laver where they dip. From a pitcher, take the water out of the brazen laver and wash their hands, refresh themselves from the work that they had done at the brazen altar. They would then proceed into the tent, and when they came into the tent, they would see two things. They would see a golden lampstand, and they would see a table of showbread, a table with bread on it with no chairs to sit down. Mm -hmm. They'd proceed a little further to the golden altar of incense where an incense was burning before the veil, and then they would come in to the Holy of Holies. Now, follow me here. Where there was a seat. Where there was a seat. But not for, not for the Levitical priesthood to sit down. This was the seat of God in the midst of the people. This was the seat. This was the mercy seat. It pictures the Ark of the Covenant is literally the lid on it is called the mercy seat. This was the throne of God in the midst of Israel. And this was the place not where the Levitical priesthood would sit down, but this pictured the throne of God, literally in heaven that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that now he entered into heaven. If you read all of Hebrews, he entered into heaven through the Holy of Holies with his very own precious blood. And he did that work on the actual mercy seat the actual throne room of heaven and he sat down after he accomplished the work he had a seat on the mercy seat and now we have the uh, the boldness and the access to boldly approach right into the very throne room of god because jesus sat down at the majesty on high Woo! now let me just tell you that is that's a grand slam right there amen <laughs> That is a grand slam. Who? No place to sit down in the tabernacle except for the perfect high priest that finished the work. Now here's why Now you ask, but well, wait a second. Wait a second. If you're an inquisitive person like me, you've already asked this question. Why wasn't there a seat for the priest? They could have used it. They would have been tired by the time they got up there to the veil. You know? Because their work continued. It was never done. The writer of Hebrews says that when Jesus made the sacrifice for sins once and for all, he sat down. In fact, I believe I have that verse. Hebrews 10 Verse 12. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So he offered one sacrifice. Here, think of the think of the Levitical priesthood. Every day making the sacrifices. Every year, every month, every year, year after year, after year, after year, after year, for all those years. And Jesus comes. And after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now what we have is a seated Christ. A seated Christ. Why? Because the work has been done. The work has been accomplished. He's seated. And here's the invitation. Here is the invitation. Come and sit with me. Come and sit with me. Read Revelation chapter 3 verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne as I sat down at my father's throne. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven 28. You'll see it on the screen. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So you who are out there, have you entered into his rest? Have you entered into the rest of the Lord? Some might say, no, I haven't entered the rest of the Lord. I haven't done it. Well, you need to. Amen? You need to get that done. That's one thing that you need to accomplish. In fact, I'd say that that's so important, I'd put that at the top of the to-do list. Amen? Give your life to Christ. Enter into the, re- the rest of the Lord. You receive Christ, and in receiving Him, His finished work of redemption is appropriated to your life, and you enter the rest of the Lord through believing and trusting in Him. And then what happens? After that, I've entered into the rest. I've entered into the rest of the Lord. Now what happens for the believer? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 5, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and here it is, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? So what is it that Christ... When you've entered into Christ... When you've entered into a relationship with Christ... You've entered into the rest of Christ. You've entered into the rest of the Lord. And He accomplished everything for you and your salvation... Perfectly on the cross. He said it's finished. And when He accomplished it... He sat down on the throne. And He invites you to come. And and for your burden to be lifted... The burden of your sin. The burden of your life. This goes to every ounce and every core of your life physically, spiritually, emotionally, down to the depths of your soul because you give your life to Christ. He takes care of you physically. He takes care of you emotionally. He's your counselor. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your leader. He's your shepherd. He leads you beside still waters. He's done everything for you. He's going to take care of you from all the way through till the, you breathe your dying breath. And when you are no longer present in this body, you're going to be very present with the Lord. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Somebody somebody, do some preaching. <laughs> That's good stuff. So what is this? You've entered into the rest of the Lord. You are now seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. Christian, do you understand? This is, this is where you're at in your life. You say, where am I at? I feel like I'm wandering around out here. I feel like I'm on the loose. No, Christian, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Amen? Amen? And you need to understand that. You need to understand that, that this is your reality. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and 365 days a year, Christian, you're in the rest of the Lord. Now, if you're not in the rest of the Lord, if you're not in the rest of the Lord, And I suspect there might be some here that are not. I want to encourage you. Let me say this: first of all, I love you. I love you. And there would be nothing more that I would want for you to make that important decision to receive Christ and to enter the rest of the Lord. There's no other thing that you decision you could make that would Be more joyful for me. And not only that, but the Bible tells us that there's a party, that the angels, you know, have a celebration when one soul comes to the Lord. Amen? So I want to invite you to enter into the rest of the Lord tonight by receiving him and accepting his finished work that he did on the cross on your behalf.